This is Trump Watch. I'm John Wiener, live in L.A. on 90.7 KPFK, talking about what Trump is actually doing, not just what he's tweeting. Later in this hour, we'll talk about deporting people the government considers undesirable 100 years ago and today. Adam Hochschild has that history. It's the unhappy 100th anniversary of the Palmer Raids of 19, which have some striking similarities to what Trump would like to do today. We'll also talk about a fascinating new novel set against some of the deep forces powering the 19th and 20th centuries. The book is The Great Eastern, and the author is Howard Rodman. He's past president of the Writers Guild of America West and professor at USC's School of Cinematic Arts. First up, maybe you heard the news, impeachment proceedings began yesterday in the House. Trump Watch starts right now. For comment on the first day of impeachment hearings, we turn, of course, to John Nichols. He's national affairs correspondent for the nation and host of the Next Left podcast. John, welcome back. It's an honor to be with you, my friend. Well, I thought Adam Schiff was right when he opened the hearings by saying the facts are not in dispute. So then what are the Republicans supposed to do? Uh, Let's start with the Trump defenders in the hearings. They were some of the most interesting parts of the day. Uh, We got a renewed sense of of the of the intellectual abilities of Devin Nunes. And we, we got a first look at the senator in shirt sleeves, Jim Jordan. He's the Republican Hitman from Ohio brought in because of the intellectual abilities of Devin Nunes. What did you think of Devin Nunes and Jim Jordan yesterday? Here's the deal, John. Um, if you ever get in real trouble, and I'm talking about big trouble, yes, like kind of sold your country out, corrupted elections, high crimes and misdemeanors kind of trouble, yes, just pray that you don't end up with Devin Nunes and Jim Jordan. (laughs) Well, they try. I mean, yeah, yeah. They're different. They have very different approaches. Yeah, I mean, uh, I guess if you call throwing, you know, whatever you've got at the wall on this side of the room versus the wall on that side of the room, um, but the, the fact is, it was summed up very well. I've got a friend named Dan Krumkin, who's a pretty good analyst of this stuff. And he said, uh, he said, yeah, it kind of summed up as, we got nothing. <laughs> um, <laughs> and I sort of liked that. I thought that was, that was about it. The, the truth of the matter is that um, Nunes came in. And, and, of course, he's the point man, despite the fact that they brought, you know, Jordan in, right, because – too many people were wearing jackets on the committee. Um, so they, they bring Jordan in. And by the way, I object to your introduction of him. He is never going to be a U.S. senator. Oh, pardon ever. me. Did I say uh, senator? I meant representative. My apologies to all. No, I just clarifying in case any Thank people you. were thinking. There are literally people were t- tuning out of the show to make no, the nations no, no. to move to other countries. <laughs> um, but, but uh, you know... Nunes is the point man. He's the guy, right? He he's the response to Adam Schiff. He is the uh, the first questioner of the congressional questioners on the minority side. I mean, you know, he's he's important, I guess. And and it's sort of astounding 
um, what he revealed in his questioning, because and as well as in his opening statement, and that is that he gets pretty much all of his information uh, by reading, you know, like the the Twitter trolls that respond to Adam Schiff. Mm. I mean, you know, it's just like conspiracy theories, delusional rants, crude condemnations, dismissive of distinguished uh, witnesses. It was, it was shocking, really. Um, but if you boiled it all down and you and you you know got rid of all the bluster and the absurdity of it, you end up with um, a guy who says, "I'm not here to defend Donald Trump. I'm here to try and indict this process in any way I can, because and I think this is the real translation of it. I know that what's happening today is the beginning of something that's going to get a lot worse mm-hmm. for Donald Trump. Yeah, and then Jordan came in, right? Similarly, you know, everybody calls him the attack dog, but the fact is, did you notice the people he was attacking were sort of smiling through everything he said? <laughs> they, they, they weren't laughing at him, but they were sort of like, okay, that's where you want to go with this? Yeah, we can talk about that. Um, it, it was a, this was a quote-unquote defense of Donald Trump that was effectively defenseless. It didn't have the, it didn't have the tools that were needed. Why that is important, John? is because of what we really were seeing yesterday. Yesterday was not an explosive moment in this process. Yesterday was, was really just opening arguments and, uh, and laying the groundwork for what is likely to be an explosive moment. And it's important to kind of listen to what the witnesses said. And the witnesses said that Donald Trump is accused of doing things that are not in the national interest, but instead of in his own personal political interest, and doing those in an official capacity, using the power of his office, abusing the power of his office to advance his own self-interest. That's classic impeachable offense. So they, yeah. they laid it down. And you, the Republican response is, well, yeah, but you didn't hear Trump explicitly say I am going to violate the Constitution. You know, I'm going to like contradict the Constitution and commit high crimes and misdemeanors. Trump didn't officially say that to you, so we don't have to take you seriously. But in fact, fascinatingly enough, Taylor, with the information he brought in as regards Ambassador Sondland, suggesting that, that there really was a conversation between Trump and Sondland where Trump said, uh, you know, or essentially where it was communicated, that Trump cared more about the Biden investigation than he did about U.S. policy toward Ukraine, uh, i.e. kind of sums the whole thing up, yeah. and that there was a witness to this. I mean, what happened there was, apart from all the bluster, everything else that was said, you set up the Sondland testimony for next week as essentially, and then realizing that history is different and things change, but, but in many senses, the John Dean moment. If Sondland says what I guess he's expected to say and what would extend from the testimony that has been given and that will be given in the next day or so, um, he's going to be saying that the president of the United States chose his personal political ambitions over the good of the country and abused his office to advance those ambitions. 
And and I, I, I would like to inject here, it's hardly surprising that Trump was more interested in getting dirt on the Bidens than in American policy towards Ukraine. He doesn't really care about Ukraine, you know, except as a player maybe in the Putin world. But, you know, he really cares about uh, himself, I've heard. And this is com- totally consistent with everything else we know about him. So it seemed to me... You know, the Republicans had some really bad arguments. Um, One of my, what might be the worst Republican argument is that because Ukraine in the end got the money for the anti-tank missiles without their part of the quid pro quo, they didn't open Mm -hmm. and announce, on CNN, they were opening an investigation of the Bidens. Therefore, no crime was committed and there's no case for impeachment. They... They don't seem to understand that attempted bribery is is a crime. Uh, there is a better Republican argument, but we don't hear very much of it, which is that I think Nikki Haley said this, not as part of the hearings, of course, but over the weekend. Basically, she said it's all true, but it's not big enough to remove a president from office. Now, you don't hear the Republicans saying what's really their best argument why do you think they don't know that great? It's not that great an argument. <laughs> well, there's that, too. There's that, too. It's, it's, kinda, it's sort of like it's sort of like the I went to college version of the first argument, you know, but it, it, it's not really that great. You know, it's still, you know, somebody who learned to kind of game the language rather than than a real answer. And and here's the complexity for the Republicans. They they have a president who wants to say he did nothing wrong, right? Right. And who's giving them nothing to work with. It was a perfect I mean, phone call. The phone call was perfect. And, and he was even kind of mad at Haley for saying, apparently, there's some, you know, these are mad at people who are, are putting that argument that you just mentioned out. Yeah. Um, because, because he wants people to say, no, 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 it was perfect. It was absolutely, everything that was done was exactly right. And the the problem with this is that I think that Trump, and perhaps some of those Republicans who you're expecting more of on the committee, which is very sweet of you, John, but um, some of those Republicans on the committee, I think, like Trump, actually do believe that the, you know, the biggest issue of the 2010s was Hillary Clinton's emails. Yeah. And the biggest issue of the 2020s will apparently be Hunter Biden. You know, I mean, they're 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 living in their troll world and. They're not be able to see beyond it. They they think that this. I, I, and I, I'm giving them a lot of credit. I'm actually saying that they some of them genuinely believe this because it's been you know fed to them so often. the The trouble with it is is that it's not real. It's not realistic. It's not something that we should take seriously. And and ultimately, in this context where you're dealing with adults, right? You know when you've got Adam Schiff and other people there, and I'm not even the biggest fan of Adam Schiff, but he's an adult, right? Yeah. Um, when you're putting this stuff out, it just doesn't, it doesn't attach. It doesn't make sense. And it's not to say, by the way, that um, you couldn't have a good discussion about whether Hunter Biden belonged on that board. It's totally legitimate to ask about. I don't have a problem with that. It's just that doesn't have anything to do with this, yeah. right? Yeah. Because... If this was a big deal, right, and remembering, of course, that there's been a lot of investigation which suggests that it wasn't a big deal, 
right, and that the wrongdoing that's being accused wasn't there. But, you know, if, if that's what you want to say, okay, go there, do that, that's fine. But don't, don't foster the fantasy that when the President of the United States wants something to do, done to harm a political rival, that he can use tax dollars, allocated tax dollars, and in fact use the, the position of the United States in the world to make that happen. Because, and this is where we get beyond Donald Trump and why I, I wish the Democrats, you're talking about the Republicans not doing a very good job. This is one thing the Democrats need to do a better job on, is to say explicitly, and, and Schiff did kind of hint at it some in his opening statement, some of his other comments, It needs to be explicitly said. If Donald Trump can do this, right, if he gets away with this, then the future of the presidency has been completely altered because a president of the United States has the go-ahead, the imprimatur, if you will, to use his or her position to assure that they get a second term. And this is something very new in the zone of impeachment. Our previous impeachments have all been at a point where a president was not seeking re-election or was in his second term. Here we have a president in his first term who's been revealed almost in real time to be using his position to secure a second term. If Congress can't intervene at that point and say, stop, this can't happen, and in fact, you cannot continue in office because of what you have done and because of what you claim is perfect and great and seem to suggest you will continue to do, um, then the whole project goes out the window because then presidents are given the go-ahead to perpetuate their presidency using U.S. tax dollars, the posi- their power of their position, the whole thing. So what we're talking about here is a really, really, really big deal. And frankly, Hunter Biden just isn't the issue. Neither is anything else that these Republicans brought up. Nancy Pelosi today said that the evidence yesterday showed that Trump uh, could be charged with bribery, that is, offering Ukraine money for weapons in exchange for digging up dirt on the Biden, uh, on the Bidens. Um, that's a term that we haven't heard used very much by the Democratic leadership until today. What do you think about charging Trump with bribery? I don't think that you should do it casually. I think that what is happening is that some evidence is, is coming out that seems to get you into that zone. Our Democratic friends have gotten very excited by the word bribery. Adam Schiff has used it. Pelosi now uses it. Why are they excited? because it's actually in the Constitution, right? Yeah. yeah. Um, and our Democratic friends are, frankly, afraid of the term high crimes and misdemeanors. They, they don't know how to define it, and they're afraid that it gives too much turf. So they would love to impeach Donald Trump for bribery. However, bribery is an incredibly hard uh, crime. Remember, impeachment not being a criminal procedure, but a political one. But still, if we look in that zone, it's a hard one to prove. You have to have intent you have to have you know some some kind of clarity there um i i happen to believe that the abuse of office which to my mind falls very clearly under the high crimes and misdemeanors i mean it's literally the definition 
of what the founders talked about when they were talking about high crimes and misdemeanors is really the heart of this thing. The violations of the Emoluments Clause making a second article, the obstruction making a third article. Um, I'd be careful about the bribery fight. Um, and, and again, if you've got it nailed, if you're, if you know, you've got every constitutional scholar in that you can find saying, yep, this meets the standard, it fits in, fine, go there. But don't go there casually. Opening so, up new terminology, going to new territory um, is something that, that I, I think speaks, again, to the, the fear of impeachment on the part of many of the Democrats. They're always afraid of it. I don't think they need to be afraid. I think that the president has committed high crimes, seeking to corrupt an election process. And misdemeanors, you know, literally, you know, this sort of gaming of the thing through, you know, these bizarre phone calls and pressuring people and stuff like that. You know, you've got your standard met. Don't don't get too freaked out on other terms. That'd be my I hate to sound mild and responsible and even legalistic (laughs) here. But I I do think that um, this is a doable thing without without. Opening the bribery charge, I'm not against the bribery charge at all. I think it's great if you've got it, but make sure you've got it, because we're now talking about a situation where the president of the United States is facing serious charges of wrongdoing. Um, How you define them, how you advance your efforts to hold them to account really matters because we're on the cusp of an election. John Nichols. Read him at thenation.com, and you can listen to him on the Next Left podcast. John, always great to have you on the show. Thanks for talking with us today. Honored to be with you. I'm John Wiener, live in L.A. on 90.7 KPFK with Trump Watch and the Trump Watch podcast. Next up, deporting people called undesirable 100 years ago and today. That's in a minute on KPFK when Trump Watch continues. It's the same old story. This is Trump Watch. I'm John Wiener, live in LA on KPFK, streaming at kpfk.org and online anytime you want it at trumpwatchpodcast.com. Later in the sh- in the show, the true story of Jules Verne, critic of British imperialism and man very much moved by the sepoy mutiny in India. But first, there's an unhappy anniversary coming up, the 100th anniversary of the Palmer Raids. That was the roundup and arrest of 10,000 people, followed by mass deportations of immigrants, people the government deemed undesirable in 1919. It's the sort of thing Trump would love to do if he could. For that history, we turn to Adam Hochschild. He's an award-winning writer on social justice, His many books include Bury the Chains, about the first movement to mobilize people against slavery, succeeded at abolishing the slave trade in England in 1807. And I also love his book, To End All Wars. It's about the anti-war movements of the World War I era. Adam teaches journalism at Berkeley, and he's also a contributor to The New Yorker. Adam Hochschild, welcome back. Good to be with you again, John. Well, return with us now to Ellis Island in New York Harbor in December 1919. What happened there? It was kind of an amazing scene because this country uh, 
exactly 100 years ago, was in the grip of a mania for deportation, a frenzy about deporting people. Uh, in this case, it was also ethnic in that the people who were being deported were mainly Italians and Jews, but it was also political. Uh, this was, 1919 was two years after the Bolsheviks had taken over in Russia. There was a tremendous red scare going on in the United States, and the powers that be felt that uh, uh, not only was uh, communism extremely dangerous and there was a risk that the you know the Russian Revolution could spread to the United States, but the people who seemed most in the thick of it and most propagating these doctrines were likely to be Jewish. Similarly, they were very worried about anarchism because anarchists had in fact planted some bombs, uh, blown up part of the house of the Attorney General of the United States in, in the middle of 1919, uh, and the anarchists were largely Italians. So the deportation frenzy, you know, that today is focused mainly on people from Latin America, at that time was focused largely against uh, Italians and Jews, uh, and especially those who the government considered communists or anarchists. There was this remarkable scene at Ellis Island that happened just before Christmas, 1919, uh, there were roughly 250 prisoners on the island, this place that had been, you know, the gateway of hope for millions of in immigrants coming to the United States. You know, your ancestors and mine and millions of other people's ancestors was now an immigration prison where people were being held before they were to be deported. And the chief orchestrator of this uh, deportation was a 24-year-old guy who was a relatively junior position at the Justice Department named J. Edgar Hoover, who uh -huh. later would go on to position of enormous power as head of the FBI. And uh, he had been pushing for this along with many other people in the Justice Department and the administration. Uh, they had these roughly 250 prisoners on the island, and this this was the first batch of what they hoped would be thousands and thousands of radical immigrants who would be deported. These mass expulsions of 1919, uh, you say, had been preceded by an anti-immigrant campaign. How similar was that to what we have seen in the last couple of years? I think there, there are quite a few similarities. Uh, basically, you know, if we roll the clock back 100 years, look at the United States then. Here was a country which uh, mm -hmm. previously, since the beginning, since colonial days, had basically been run by an Anglo-Saxon elite. And then starting around 1890 or so, uh, there started to be a large wave of immigrants coming to the U.S. from Eastern Europe, from the Russian Empire, and from Italy, especially southern Italy. And the Anglo-Saxons, who'd run the country up until that time, you know, uh, from George Washington to Theodore Roosevelt to Woodrow Wilson, 
uh, were people who were very upset by this. There were a lot of ideas about eugenics in the air that they seized on, uh, feeling that the country's stock, which was a word that uh, they used to, to like to use a lot, was being corrupted and debased by all these Jews and Italians who were pouring in. And of course, you know, the immigrants who were coming in were usually quite poor and coming here because they hoped they could make a better life for themselves. Um, and I think there are some similarities to that today, where, you know, those in power get uh, menaced by the fact that the people who look slightly different from white Americans are coming here in large numbers from Latin America. And, you know, Trump comes right out and says it, you know, well, if the immigrants were coming from Norway, that wouldn't be a problem. Well, these were the same kinds of ideas that were, uh, were in the air back then. And then it was connected to the fact that uh, so many of the radicals who were active in the U.S. at that time, socialists, communists, anarchists, were in fact uh, foreign immigrants. There are plenty of native-grown radicals as well, but, but uh, many of the most active were foreign-born. And if they were foreign-born and had never gotten fully naturalized as American citizens, that gave the government the opportunity to deport them. The one big difference between that campaign and what Trump has been doing, I learned from your article in The New Yorker, is that uh, in 1919, the proposals being made were not just to send back immigrants who were deemed undesirable. There was other people who were citizens who were considered undesirable by some people in the country and some people in the government. The radicals, the leftists, the anarchists that you've mentioned, tell us about the argument about deporting them. Well, you know, people were in such a frenzy about the radicals and in such fear that the Russian Revolution might spread to the United States that they came up with ideas such as where could you deport people? Well, you could deport them to Guam. You know, if somebody was native, native-born American. Uh, you know, there wasn't some place in Europe that you could send him or her back to, but we had taken Guam from Spain in the Spanish-American War, and that seemed a very distant place, safely distant. And there was a senator actually who talked about uh, uh, sending people to sending people to Guam. Um, but and there was also there were also calls, as there have been today, for doing away with birthright citizenship, which has been something that we've long had in this country, where somebody who's born here automatically becomes an American citizen. But this issue was raised in racial terms, you know, that maybe that should just be be restricted to white Americans. They would have that right, but Asians, who they were also very worried about, would not. So these were some of the ideas that were floating around in the air, and that one dramatic expression of them was what happened at Ellis Island on that day. Paint the scene for us at Ellis Island in December 1919. Okay. So here we are, uh, a couple of days before Christmas in the year uh, 1919, and Ellis Island has been turned into an immigration prison. Uh, the 249 people there... Uh, among whom the most notable are the anarchist and feminist firebrand Emma Goldman 
and her longtime collaborator and sometime lover, Alexander Berkman. Uh, Emma Goldman had uh, actually been naturalized as an American citizen by virtue of marrying somebody at one point many years earlier who was an American, but then he lost his citizenship because he'd falsified something on his application. So therefore, her citizenship was uh, legally declared uh, non-existent as well. So that gave the government the opportunity to, to deport this wonderfully colorful troublemaker who'd been in this country for 34 years, most of her life, <laughs> found her political voice here, found a huge audience here, an audience that carried to other countries as well. But here she was on Ellis Island in the middle of the night with 248 other people. And this deportation, this mass deportation, was considered <laughs> so important by the government that J. Edgar Hoover led a delegation, including the head of the Bureau of Investigation, a predecessor of the FBI, and several members of Congress to Ellis Island in the middle of the night so that they could see these prisoners being loaded onto a barge pushed by a tugboat that was going to take them from Ellis Island to uh, Brooklyn, where the ship on which they were to be deported was docked. And in the uh, and the Cong Hoover and the congressman rode came along for that ride, that short ride. Um, would that Hoover had been deported as well. Uh, the history of our country might have been different, but unfortunately that didn't happen. Uh, and happily, one of the congressmen uh, kept a quite detailed record of what happened. And at about four o'clock in the morning, Hoover and Emma Goldman encountered each other inside the, uh, the galley or kitchen of the tugboat and had a conversation uh, in which uh, I think Emma Goldman <laughs> got in a good jab at Hoover. It went like this, and I'm reading from this, the record that the, the, the congressman made of it. Uh, he said to her, haven't I given you a square deal, Miss Goldman? And she said back to him, oh, I suppose you've given me as square a deal as you could. Uh, we shouldn't expect from any person something beyond his capacity. So here's this strange conversation happening between one of the most uh, colorful and influential American radicals ever and the man who would go on to become the uh, 20th century's most uh, uh, extreme red hunter in the United States happening in the kitchen of a tugboat uh, in the middle of the night steaming across <laughs> New York Harbor. Very strange. So there were... 10,000 people were arrested in the Palmer raids. More than 6,000 deportation cases were uh, prepared by J. Edgar Hoover's forces, but only a few hundred people were ever deported. Why was the number so low? What happened? Well, there was a remarkable and uh, sadly very unknown uh, hero involved. Here's what happened. The, the Palmer Raids, as they're known, happened in uh, several waves, the two biggest of which were on November 7th, 1919, this pointedly the, the second anniversary of the, the Bolshevik seizure of power in Russia, 
and then again uh, in early January of 1920. And these raids netted netted an estimated total of 10,000 people. The government was deliberately targeting radicals whom they believed not to be U.S. citizens and who could therefore be deported. And so they prepared deportation warrants and cases uh, against the, the great majority of these folks. But there was a curious legal wrinkle, which was that although it was the Justice Department that had the power to mobilize its squads of agents to go out and arrest large numbers of people and often uh, rough them up quite badly in the process, uh, immigration deportations fell under the authority of the Immigration Bureau, which was part of the Department of Labor. At this time, uh, and we're now talking early 1920, the Secretary of Labor was on sick leave. Uh, the second-in-command of the Labor Department, who would normally take over in his absence, resigned suddenly to uh, run for Congress. And that meant the third-ranking person in the Labor Department, the Assistant Secretary of Labor, was now acting Secretary of Labor with the authority over deportations. And this was a guy then 70 years old named Louis F. Post, and he was a very good guy, a longtime progressive journalist uh, who was one of many sort of progressive idealists who had joined the Wilson administration when Woodrow Wilson had first been elected uh, president in 1912. And Post was outraged at the prospect of these uh, mass deportations. He was somebody who was a staunch anti-racist. From his early days, he'd actually uh, worked as a uh, a court reporter uh, right after the Civil War during Reconstruction in South Carolina and had been appalled at the racism he'd seen there and at the way Uh, President Ulysses F. Grant had pardoned Ku Klux Klan members who'd been convicted of uh, murdering black people. And Palmer had known many of the prominent American radicals and progressives. Emma Goldman had once had dinner in his home. And he did everything he could to stop these deportations. And he'd also, before becoming a journalist, he'd worked as a lawyer. So he knew the ins and outs of the law and he invalidated arrest warrants, he reduced or eliminated bail, uh, and he basically stopped J. Edgar Hoover and his boss, the Attorney General, um, uh, A. Mitchell Palmer, from deporting all but about 5 or 10% of the people that they'd hoped to deport. They were furious at him, and Post became one of the first, although by no means the last, uh, victim of an attempted smear campaign by J. Edgar Hoover, but Hoover failed. Hoover tried to get him impeached by Congress. That didn't work. He mobilized the American Legion to try to get Post fired. Uh, That didn't work. And uh, Post remained in office uh, uh, until the end of the Wilson administration. So let's connect this history with our current situation. It sounds like once again, There's some similarities here. This man, Louis F. Post, is someone who Trump would call part of the deep state. Is that right? Absolutely right. Absolutely right. And just as today, we've had some deep state people 
like those State Department diplomats uh, speaking up quite boldly in the impeachment hearings. Uh, at the time, uh, Louis F. Post was somebody who was, you know, an, a previously unnoticed government bureaucrat, but who took the law very seriously and didn't want to see it abused and didn't want to see these mass deportations happening uh, for no other reason than combination of political and racial prejudice. And I think Louis F. Post can be an example to people today. Uh, when it comes uh, time to testify before the impeachment in inquiry and wherever that leads, people in government like him should speak out and speak out loudly. Adam Hochschild wrote a terrific piece about the world of the Palmer Raids in The New Yorker. Thank you, Adam. Great to have you on the show. Okay. Well, thank you, John. I'm John Wiener, live in L.A. on 90.7 KPFK, and this is Trump Watch. Next up, Captain Nemo meets Captain Ahab. That's in a minute on KPFK when Trump Watch continues. <music> It's the same old story. This is Trump Watch. I'm John Wiener, live in L.A. on KPFK, streaming at kpfk.org, and online anytime you want it at trumpwatchpodcast.com. Coming up at 4 tonight on KPFK, Rising Up with Sonali. Now it's time to talk about The Great Eastern. It's a fascinating new novel written by Howard Rodman. He's past president of the Writers Guild of America West and professor at USC's School of Cinematic Arts. He's also an accomplished screenwriter. I loved his film Savage Grace, starring Julianne Moore, and his film Joe Gould's Secret with Stanley Tucci. Howard Rodman, welcome back. Thanks. It's great to be here, John. Well, your protagonist in The Great Eastern has a truly wonderful name, Kingdom Brunel. How did you come up with that? I was going down one of those rabbit holes of research and came across the name Isambard Kingdom Brunel, and I knew nothing more than the name. I just thought that's the most glorious name in <laughs> fact or fiction. And it turns out, in fact, uh, Isambard Kingdom Brunel was the preeminent civil engineer of the Victorian era. He built the Great Western Railway. He built Paddington Station. He built the Avon Suspension Bridge. He built the first tunnel underneath a river ever. He built the first viable ocean-going steamships. He built the ship, the Great Eastern, from which the book takes its title, which was at the time six times larger than any ship ever built. A couple of years ago, the BBC ran a poll of who are the 100 most important Britons. And Isambard Kingdom Brunel came in second after Winston Churchill. <laughs> oh my so God. the more I found out about him, the more I, found, I thought this guy belongs at the center of a narrative. Well, the plot in a nutshell is that Brunel's ship, the Great Eastern, is given the task of laying the first transatlantic cable. Why was that such a big deal? Cyrus Field, the telegraph magnate, had a dream of a cable underneath the North Atlantic from Nova Scotia to Ireland, from Foyle Hummerum to Heart's Content, and made three, four attempts to lay the cable, and all of them failed, either because 
the weather wouldn't cooperate or because they laid the cable and it was severed either by rocks or perhaps even malevolent sea creatures. Who knows? So in this book, we follow history with the Great Eastern laying the final attempt at a transatlantic telegraphic cable. And fictionally, we assume that the attacks on the cable were not by jagged rocks or previously unknown to man sea creatures, but rather Captain Nemo and his submarine Nautilus. Let's talk about Captain Nemo. I first met him, alas, in the Disney film 20,000 Leagues Under the Sea. I was 10 years old. It was 1954. This was a Technicolor film, a Cinemascope film. It was personally produced, I learned from Wikipedia, by Walt Disney. It starred Kirk Douglas, and Captain Nemo was played by a sinister James Mason. The film was the most expensive in Hollywood to that date, apparently. It won two Academy Awards. What I remember most is Kirk Douglas singing, I Got a Whale of a Tale to Tell. It also involved a fight with a giant squid. You're younger than I am, but I'm sure you must have seen this film, too. I saw this film, too, and I remember Kirk Douglas singing, you know, uh, I swear by my harpoon. (laughs) And I particularly remember uh, James Mason saying, I am Captain Nemo. (laughs) But um, the more I read the real Jules Verne, uh, the more I found out that Captain Nemo was not James Mason. Captain Nemo was in Jules Verne. An Indian prince, Prince Dakar of Bundelkhand, who sided with his people against the British during the Sepoy Rebellion of 1857. In retaliation, the British killed his family, and with a broken revolution and a blackened heart, he decided to have no more truck with humanity ever again, and to build a submarine and spend the rest of his life underneath the sea, except every once in a while when he would encounter a British ship, he would sink it. The... Sepoy Rebellion, as it was called, a revolt in India against the British in 1857. Just for those who never learned about this or have forgotten, it was North India's first war of independence from the British. India was the richest colony in the history of the world. The Sepoy Rebellion was a titanic event in the history of anti-colonial movements. Malcolm X wrote about it in his autobiography. How did you discover that Jules Verne was also interested in the Sepoy Rebellion? Well, the American translations of the Jules Verne book were based on the English translations, and all of the politics were uh, elided and bodlerized and rendered out by the English translations, who didn't like Captain Nemo saying awful things about the British. So it really wasn't until I started reading the French versions, and then there's now an un- abridged, unexpurgated new American translation that I understood that Captain Nemo wasn't just a kind of bearded James Mason, but was actually a profound anti-colonialist and somebody who was continuing to fight the battles of 1857 in different times and different geographies. So I'd like to ask you to read a little bit of The Great Eastern, uh, this section in chapter four. Um, Where we are in the Great Eastern is 
Captain Nemo, who needs someone to perfect his submarine, has just kidnapped Isambard Kingdom Brunel, the greatest living civil engineer of his time. And then to explain the why of that, uh, we turn the clock back from 1859 to 1857 to the time of the Sepoy Mutiny. And what was this singular event? The spark which the prairie fire did light occurred in Barakpur. The spark was struck by a sepoy, Mangal Pandey, whose name may be known to you. Mangal Pandey, whose visage now graces postage stamps, but who in March of 1857 was a soldier in the Bengal Native Infantry, a loyal sepoy taking orders from the British East India Company until, one morning, when he awoke otherwise and with vengeance in his heart. Mangal Pandey's revolt was less a demand for redress than something more inchoate, and it might be ventured that not even Mangal Pandey himself fully understood his motivations. Mangal Pandey did not want, he needed, and what he needed was a world utterly unlike the one in which he found himself. That newer world could not be attained by dint of labor, nor even by dint of dream. To get there, if to get there were even possible, he would have to rend the fabric of the everyday, do it so dramatically and thoroughly that the real world might be glimpsed beyond the scrim. He was nothing and needed to be everything. But that was not the thought in his uppermost mind. Rather, it expressed to him as an impulse, one that could not be denied. He awoke knowing, with calm certainty, that he was going to kill the next white man he encountered. Howard Rodman, reading from his novel The Great Eastern, so the transatlantic cable, meanwhile, seems to have been sabotaged, and Captain Ahab is hired to investigate. Now, I know that at the end of Moby Dick, Captain Ahab dies, and you write in The Great Eastern, no one would be faulted for believing Captain Ahab to be dead. But in The Great Eastern, we learned that Ahab survived the destruction of the Pequod, how did that happen? Well, it starts with Jules Verne because Captain Nemo does die at the end of 20,000 Leagues Under the Sea. But when it's convenient for him to be alive again in its sequel, Mysterious Island, there he is. And there he dies again. And I just took the fictional liberty of assuming the second death to be as provisional as the first. And once I was going down the road of seeing deaths as provisional rather than final... Uh, I decided, well, if we're bringing Nemo back, there's no reason we can't bring Ahab back. Uh, I kept thinking of that slide that pops up in the middle of Godard's Two or Three Things that says, human labor resurrects things from the dead. And so the human labor of writing a novel, I thought, was sufficient to resurrect Ahab as well as Nemo, as well as a number of other dead people who rise up here in fictional form. You've made us very sympathetic to Captain Nemo. Captain Ahab, we know well. He's been driven insane in Moby Dick by his nemesis, the white whale. He's certainly not a sympathetic character. He's a terrifying, uh, obsessed, insane man who endangers in, in his entire crew. So the obvious move in bringing him back would be to make him more sympathetic, to bring us along with him the way the way you have uh, done with Captain Nemo. But that's not what you did with Ahab. Well, you know, 
terrifying, obsessed, bringing down uh, everyone who sides with him. I mean, which is to say, in a word, American. <laughs> but there's a line in Moby Dick where at the end Ahab refers to the whale as thou all-destroying yet unconquering beast. And that's how I see Ahab and that's how I see America in this book. But I think it's a mistake to say that we cannot, as readers, empathize with this Ahab. The real villain of the piece is Cyrus Field, the man who would ignore all national boundaries to make the entire world available to each other at a single instant to enable the flow of capital by wire rather than merely by ships and rails, and to make of the world one world in a way that works best for those who own it and worst for those who don't. And Ahab in this, uh, like Isambard Kingdom Brunel, is kind of caught in the middle. On the one hand, he obsessively hates everything beneath the waves, and if he is hired to combat whatever is attacking the cable, he will. On the other hand, without giving away too much of the plot, his allegiance is far more to his fellow sailors than it is to those who hire them. And at the end of the day, I think, despite all of his blind, vengeful Americanness, he makes choices which put him in a different place. In Moby Dick, Ahab speaks a magnificent kind of King James Old Testament English. Uh, Brian Evanson wrote in the L.A. Review of Books about the Great Eastern, quote, the Ahab sections of the Great Eastern read like chapters from a lost sequel to Moby Dick that have just been found bricked behind a wall at Arrowhead. Arrowhead is Melville's house in the Berkshires where he wrote the book. How did you do that? Well, of all the voices, his was the last to come to me. Uh, I think I'd been reading enough Jules Verne from childhood to be able to kind of um, inhabit and ventriloquize that voice when I had to voice an Indian prince who had gone to Oxford, somehow that too was a voice that was already in my head. But with Ahab, I was kind of stumped. And I started with a kind of King James biblical version, but that felt a little stilted and it felt a little cut and paste. And it really wasn't until I realized that the voices I should use for Ahab were much more American voices than the King James Version, and I was channeling a couple of people, William S. Burroughs and Iggy Pop. <laughs> wow. Um, you know, I'm the street-walking son of a nuclear A-bomb, Iggy Pop, and the William Burroughs of rancid jism in the junk sick dawn, <laughs> sometime the trapdoor fall, and there go Johnny. For John Dillinger, in hope that he is still alive. And so I think between those two take-no-prisoners, atavistic, utterly all-conquering, all-destroying American yawp voices, I found my Ahab. <laughs> Magnificent. So I understand the Great Eastern is on its way to becoming a movie. Of course, James Mason, as we've said, played Captain Nemo in 20,000 Leagues Under the Sea. Gregory Peck played Ahab in the 1956 Moby Dick screenplay by Ray Bradbury and John Huston. Orson Welles cast himself as Captain Ahab on stage. Uh, big shoes to fill. 
Well, the good news is that I don't have to fill them. And also, if you think that someone who is adapting his own novel as a screenwriter has any say whatsoever in the <laughs> casting of an eventual movie, I want to give you the Optimist of the Year Award okay. and sell you a bridge or two. <laughs> Seems to me this is going to be an expensive uh, movie. You've got giant ships underwater shooting. How, we, how do you imagine this going? Well, there, there's a kind of interesting paradox here, which is when you're writing a novel, to print the sentence, Times Square, New Year's Eve, 1999, costs the exact same <laughs> amount of money as to print the sentence, badly furnished apartment in Bushwick, Brooklyn. But when you're making a movie, those two sentences are not of equal financial import. In writing the book, I didn't give a tinker's damn about how much it would cost to read, but in writing a screenplay, because screenplays are not movies. You know, an unpublished novel is a novel, a screenplay is not a film. And in order to make it one, somebody has to pour a lot of money into that container and shake it up really well to make it a film. So I am being attendant to questions of scale and location, but I have been told by those who have hired me that due to the advances in CGI and the ability to sort of conjure whole worlds from nothing digitally, that I really shouldn't worry about that, that that's their lookout, not mine. And I appreciated that. And if need be, um, you know, better to raise the budget than to shoot a version of this that can be done in one room. As a kind of um, historical footnote, my dad, who wrote in the days of live TV, was commissioned by Alcoa Goodyear Playhouse to adapt Moby Dick. Oh. And he asked them if he could use stock footage, and they said no. And he asked them if they could use a whale model, and they said no. So he basically shot it, you know, in a set designed to look like the Pequod. And at the end, what there was going to be was water slowly bubbling up the screen, rising, rising, as Ishmael's voice was heard in voiceover to say, and I only am left alone to tell thee. When it actually was broadcast on live television, you did hear the voice of the actor saying, and I only am left alive to tell thee. But you also saw a picture of water entering frame, pouring and exiting, live TV, no take two. It went out that way. The book is The Great Eastern by Howard Rodman. The great Ricky Jay called it a splendid and notable achievement. Howard, thanks for coming in today. John, thanks so much. It's always a pleasure to be here. Well, that's it for today's Trump Watch. I want to thank my other guest, John Nichols, talking about day one of the impeachment hearings. He's not so sure that bribery should be an article of impeachment. We also spoke with Adam Hochschild. He talked about the Palmer raids and the deportations of 1919 of people, immigrants, considered undesirable, and he traced the parallels to today. Thanks to our engineer, Gary Baca. Thanks to our producer, Renee Reynolds. Thanks, as always, to Rye Cooter for our theme music, Mambo Sinuendo. Stay tuned next for Rising Up with Sonali. Trump Watch returns next week at the same time on the same station with more talk about what Trump is actually doing, not just what he's tweeting. I'm John Wiener. Thanks for listening.